Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I am your host, Jeff Mankoff, and this week I am joined by Andrei Baklitsky, who is a visiting fellow uh, with our program and consultant at the Peer Center uh, in Moscow, and also a research fellow at the Center for Global Trends and International Organizations at the Russian Foreign Ministry's Diplomatic Academy. He writes for RBC and Kaprasant newspapers and for the Carnegie Moscow Center. In other words, he's a very busy guy. We are going to talk about Andrei's uh, forthcoming report uh, on the future of arms control, what the world is going to look like if arms control goes away, and maybe what we can do about it. Hope you enjoy. Uh, let's get started. I'm joined in the studio today by Andrei Baklitsky, who is a sitting fellow here at CSIS and is finalizing a report on the future of arms control. Andrei, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, arms control is not a very uh, encouraging topic at the moment. It seems like it's a, an issue from the past that seems to be receding further and further into the past. Uh, are you confident that we're going to have much in the way of arms control in a couple of years? Well, of course, we don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of years. I would prefer that there would be some arms control because that's something that I do for a living. <laughs> but then again, if there is no arms control, uh, I would have guessed people would want some still, maybe slightly different but still some level of predictability. So, again, it's good for your job if, if you know, everything is very fluid and, you know, things happen. Yeah, you raise an interesting point, which is that people want predictability and, and stability, but I think we're in a different historical era from the one in which these arms control treaties, like the original START treaty and its predecessors, were drafted, which was an era when the Cold War was still a visible presence in everybody's life when the fear of nuclear conflict was something that people understood in a very visceral way. And I wonder if we're moving into a world where that's not necessarily the case anymore. That could be true. And actually, um, this is something I've been thinking about for uh, a lot of time, actually. I'm not sure it's that people were afraid of nuclear war per se in the 50s, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on. I guess it's just generation who lives through the Second World War, mm -hmm. who knew what the war is. Because yeah. if you've seen uh, cities destroyed by air raids, it doesn't matter if it was nuclear or conventional. So if you lose a couple of million people or maybe tens of millions of people in the war, you just don't want another shooting war. Right. Well, especially one involving nuclear weapons, because those people who lived through the Second World War, yeah. of course, did see Hiroshima yes. and Nagasaki. And they could imagine. But I mean, I wouldn't say it was a huge difference. Hiroshima or Dresden, for example. You well, know. right. I think more people probably died in Dresden. But there is still this firebreak maybe between the way that people think about nuclear war and, and, and non-nuclear war. I think sometimes there's a tendency to forget how bad the firebombing of Dresden was. But nevertheless, you know, the nuclear weapons create a kind of, of moral, psychological terror maybe in a way that, that conventional weapons don't. Yeah. And again, we haven't had major wars for so long that People start thinking, well, maybe we can have a smaller one. Maybe yeah. we should have something on the margins. Right. And then escalation, of course. Right, yeah. It was a, a small victorious war. Yeah, of course. It's very good for your country. Yeah, well, except it's rarely <laughs> as small and victorious as you'd like. But yes. That phrase, of course, doesn't yes, that phrase, of course, comes from the Russo-Japanese War. Yes, which didn't um, go well. The kind of classic example of that, that hubris. So when we're talking about specific arms control treaties, the big uh, the focal point right now is New Start. Yeah, the one left. Yeah, the one that's that's left, which needs there needs to be a decision on whether to prolong it in about within about a year. Do you think that that's likely to happen? Wow, uh, I mean, there's a lot of debate 
and uh, it's basically now the ball is in the U.S. court. I don't generally agree with this statement. There is no game and there is no ball. It seems like we should all work together. But Russia has said, it's been on the record a number of times, that it wants to extend a new start. Then the question is what U.S. decides. The problem with the current U.S. politics is that it really looks similar to what we had during the Soviet times and the Soviet Union. You had uh, criminology, right? <laughs> you would try to interpret, you know, who stands where and when right. uh, on the parades or what have you. Try to forecast the events. So same with President Trump. You try to forecast one person's psychology and his approaches, which is really hard to do. Like, we are very bad at predicting things generally. So we just don't know uh, the right number of uh, reasons why U.S. would probably want to extend a new start. But then again, there was a lot of reasons for U.S. to stay in JCPOA or some yes. other things. Or, you know, the ABM treaty or yeah. the INF treaty. <laughs> well, yeah. So in that sense, we don't know. Um, and I have a bet for a bottle of whiskey uh, on the, if the new start would be extended during the Trump administration. So which, which side of the bet did you take? So uh, I cheated a little bit. So I bet that new start would not be extended okay. during Trump administration. So if it is extended, I'm happy and I'm mm -hmm. happy to buy a bottle of whiskey. If uh, it's not, at least I got a bottle of whiskey. So <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess I, I figured it out pretty well. But Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think if arms control increasingly goes away and international tensions rise, I think we're all going to be drinking, drinking a little yeah. more. So here you go. Okay, so we'll see in the next year where the new start is extended. But one way or another, new start is, is something that's in the past. And increasingly technological change, development of nuclear weapons by a growing number of states means that whatever arms control looks like in the future isn't necessarily going to look like what Cold War era arms control looked like. So if we decide that arms control is a thing that we want to continue to do, do you have a sense of what a post-New START arms control agreement on strategic nuclear weapons might look like? So uh, as I was alluding to in my talk, arms control is not something magical or something that people do because they are good and want to make the world a better place. Arms control is a way to manage your arms competition. So in the sense that uh, people still believe that they want to manage this competition, uh, that would be a starting point for deciding what kind of arms control do you want. If U.S. still believes that Russian nuclear weapons pose existential threat to its national security, as Russia does believe about U.S. nuclear weapons, then there is a sense to control Russian nuclear weapons and try to make it more manageable and uh, predictable. If, on the other hand, U.S. does not believe, so it believes that China is a bigger threat or Iran is the most pressing threat or something else, then, of course, uh, that would be different. I think that there is still a merit to have bilateral arms control the way we used to have during the Cold War, because nuclear weapons and arms control is still mostly about Russian-U.S. relations. Other countries just don't have that much of nuclear weapons, right. frankly. You would probably want to include other countries. You would want to include other systems. But a lot of systems could be included in our things we've been doing now, just modifying them. And other countries should not be necessarily an issue of, um, you know, like multilateral arms control. You can have multiple arms control tracks because... You China. can still have a U.S.-Russia yeah. track yeah. at the same time you're pursuing a multilateral track. I don't, for example, I don't think we need Israeli-Russian arms control. We don't deter each other. We don't threaten each other. There's very few possibilities we might interact with right. each other. The same way that you don't need U.S.-French arms control. Yeah, or U.S.-Indian arms control, right. So if uh, U.S. believes that you need, it needs arms control with China, 
great. It can have it with China or, and the second track with Russia. I don't believe that Russia and China, for example, need strategic nuclear arms control because it simply doesn't um, correspond to our priorities. Right. Yeah. I mean, both because the political relationship is different, but also because the kinds of systems that Russia and China would use to threaten one another probably are, not strategic or not yeah strategic nuclear weapons yeah we are at the border of each other when Russia believes it needs arms control and when China believes it needs arms control we do have it we have conventional arms control between Russia and China we have an agreement about demilitarization of our border it also includes some Central Asian states and it's like quite robust and uh, you have inspections you have notifications you have it really looks similar to what we used to have in um, Europe on conventional side conventional force in okay, Europe treaty the CFE, yeah yeah so basically you can see where our countries care so if you see that they don't care about strategic nuclear arms control trying to corral them into this might be not the greatest idea i mean you 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 can try to but it's not <laughs> great to spend your time and energy on that you mentioned that President Putin has called for an extension of New START without preconditions. How much of a debate is there in Russia on the value of, of bilateral arms control? Is is this position this sort of dominant one within the, the Russian arms control and strategic studies community? Or is there a, a debate as there is in the U.S. on whether this makes sense or not? I mean – uh, I would say the Russian strategic community is more, much more homogenous on this uh, point of view. And generally, Soviet Union and Russia believe that arms control is really important. And uh, the same people who are doing it in, in Soviet Union are still there. Uh, like you take Akademishin Arbatov, you can take Dr. Rogo or other people. They lived through the Soviet times and then they trans transfer to, to the Russian think tanks and uh, academia. There are some people who would be arguing that uh, you don't need arms control bilateral with uh, U.S. or any arms control for that matter because it only serves U.S. interests. U.S. is stronger. Something you would want is more unpredictability and stuff like that. Uh, but that's still a minority. You would also you know, see... Well, I know there are a lot of people in Russia who are not necessarily upset that the INF treaty went away. Yeah, true. But then again, some treaties are more important or better uh, for us than others. In INF setting, there was a lot of uh, bad blood when it was uh, signed because Soviet Union perceived, I would say, uh, fairly that it gave more than the United States did, and especially the military side were not really uh, happy with the way it was uh, done. Not, not maybe the general idea, but how it was implemented, that Gorbachev wanted so badly that he gave away a lot of things without getting much in return. From that sense, New START, and I've heard it from former military people on a number of occasions, the New START is the first, basically, treaty which Russia and the United States signed, which is equal. So no one took advantage of uh, each other. There are some imbalances, but overall it equals out. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, uh, New START is, is, is good for Russia. And there is something which, again, was thrown out a couple of times that Maybe that's a problem with uh, treaties which are indefinite. So there is some good to them because, you know, you can you don't have to extend them. They don't just expire. Right. But you, you only have to go through the political drama once. Yes. Uh, well, then you just do it all of the life cycle of the treaty as we did with ABM. But in a sense that maybe had INF uh, been terminated in year 2000 or 2005, it would seem like a huge success, right? Because we eliminated all those things, right. we went through all the processes, everything was good. But then at some point, uh, you, you, you've you seen that both countries 
were not really easy with the terms of the INF. And um, again, as I, as I said in uh, my presentation, nobody is actually trying to recreate the INF uh, treaty in its uh, you know entirety. Uh, neither US nor Russian. Now there are talks how you again limit the competition in the places you care about, mainly in Europe. But it's not like somebody is pushing to restoring of the INF treaty. Uh, but but that's not the case with a new start. It's, it's it's good. It's balanced, and I don't know people who would say that in Russia that new start is bad per se. Some people would say like arms control is bad. You don't have to do it any like at all, but not specifically about new start. So since you're wagering a bottle of whiskey that <laughs> uh, the new start treaty is not going to be extended by the U.S. side, what would happen if it's not? What is Russia's plan, or what are you? you know, people discussing for what Russia would do in the event that the New START Treaty is not extended. Well, if New START Treaty is not extended, I'm drinking. Yeah, well. Uh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> Frankly, there is not too much of a discussion in Russia about uh, what you, what would you do if New START is not extended. And yeah, maybe it tells you something about where our countries respectively are in arms control, because the majority of things we are talking about discussing in arms control uh, sphere are not, I would say, the most pressing issues sometimes because uh, just a separate example, and then I get back to the Russian uh, position. So U.S. is very interested in arms control with China, strategic arms control, nuclear arms control. President Trump went on the record saying it like eight months ago, and we do not have not even a blueprint, but even like idea what does U.S. actually want from, from China and how it might look like, and that's what Chinese colleagues would be saying to us, like, look, U.S. doesn't know what, what's, what he's talking about. So you would think that with a number of think tanks in D.C. and all over the country, with all this intellectual potential which U.S. has, you would have at least a number mm. of ideas. But it's not like they are producing those. Yeah. Uh, maybe there'll be more in this year. But that, So that's, that's similar things happening now in Russia about the new start. So... I don't know. Maybe people just don't want to think what would happen if it's not extended. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember uh, I was posing this question to some of the very senior former officials in Russia and United States at Carnegie Non-Proliferation Conference. And I uh, said, so what, what, what's our plan? What do we do after the new start is not extended? And the answer was, well, we have to make it be extended. <laughs> and I was like, wow, why no one thought about that? That seems so obvious. Uh, but seriously, so one of the things, again, I'm, I'm touching in, in my report and one touching in, was touching in my presentation is that we sort of been here before. We already had instances where the previous arms control treaty ends and there was nothing to continue the process when uh, SALT 1 ended, uh, SALT 2 haven't, wasn't, wasn't actually uh, negotiated uh, by the end uh, when new start first start expired new start has not entered into force so we have those uh, in 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 betweens right and mm -hmm. sold to never enter into force so when people say like we always had this we would this would be the first time we wouldn't have it that's not true we we had uh, those experiences before but we never had a situation when we neither had a treaty nor any negotiations to create to a create new treaty right. or any other treaties because uh, what People sometimes are referring that uh, the ABM treaty was there all the time, and it was a sort of curbing at least part of the you know this offense-defense relationship, which wouldn't be the case. So this would be something new, 
And again, uh, one thing which would be good to have when your start is not extended, if it's not extended, is to have arms control negotiations, like real negotiations, because we don't have them since uh, we negotiated a uh, new start. Right, which was now a decade ago. Yeah, it was a decade ago, and which is very surprising. We never had this huge in, uh, interval. We have now this strategic security, you call it, process, but it's basically a Russian and U.S. officials meeting twice a year for a day or two. Mm-hmm. And this is not a negotiations. Like, ne- our negotiation delegation would stay in Geneva for months and months and months just talking about those things. Uh, so uh, one of the problems now is how we, we jumpstart this, and maybe to jumpstart it, U.S. needs to figure out what its position is and what's our in- what are those interests that it wants to follow, because... Uh, as I said, uh, New START is currently in the third year of review at the National Security Council interagency process in the U.S. So, like, what are they trying to figure out for three years exactly? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. But the process doesn't work very well in the United States right now. Let's just I know, but leave like it at that. Three years, long time. I know, like, National Security Advisors change and, and everything, but still, starting negotiations would be great. Uh, in previous instances, when we didn't have uh, arms control uh, treaties, but still were interested in arms control, we came up with a statement saying, like, we're going to stick to the previous uh, treaties as long as uh, we have our process of negotiating a new treaty. Uh, so that would at least keep our numbers mm-hmm. in place. Cause there it were... would also keep the inspections in place. No. So there are two basic things we get with arms control. I mean, there are more, but uh, in the, from the treaty standpoint, the first is the, the limits. Mm-hmm. So we know what other side has, and at least uh, we hear from them what they're planning to do, what they're not planning to do. So we at least have some baseline to understand. The second thing is exchange of information and verification. How do you verify that information that the other side is not cheating, but also like just get access to what uh, whatever they're doing. Uh, so uh, the second part is uh, much harder because uh, a lot of it is based on... Uh, so we can exchange a lot of information unilaterally if we decide so. Mm-hmm. Some of the information we cannot exchange because it's national security and it's classified and you cannot just simply exchange it with foreign nation unless there is a treaty which gives you that possibility. So that would be a problem. Uh, same thing goes with inspections. You do not, like, if you're an executive and you want to invite some people to come around and see nuclear warheads, you can sort of do it, but then you don't have things like immunity, for example, for inspectors, which you would get like diplomatic or quasi-diplomatic immunity. Which means that you are sending your people basically to the other country with no guarantees that nothing... Right, they're not going to get arrested. Yeah, well, some of them, at least. Uh, So that would be, for example, another problem. We do have instances uh, where we do arms control with inspections and some verification without arms control treaty. Uh, That's a Vienna document, for example, uh, on OSC Vienna document for uh, conventional arm issues in Europe, but it only works for uh, Europe, so it never happened in the U.S. So there are are precedents for doing this in Russia, no precedents for doing this in the U.S. Uh, So I'm not sure we would be really able to pull out a verification regime. Uh, We can do exchange of some information and we can keep at least the um, saying that we're not going to violate the previous uh, commitments. Well, some of the things which are important in the new start and in all previous agreements is you do not interfere with national technical means. So a lot of things we are 
verifying us deals through national technical means, our satellites over flying and taking pictures. So in a lot of those treaties, pretty much all of them, uh, you would say you would not interfere, you would not conceal, you would not use uh, Maskirovka a lot. So like the other side would have would have to know, you would get some transparency from there. So we can agree on not doing that. That could also be done unilaterally. Also, there is that's a funny thing. So basically, all of the tre- so like uh, ABM treaty, I guess, had it, and now the new start has it. So uh, if they all go away, we would still have the threshold ban treaty, mm-hmm. which is limiting the uh, specific types of nuclear testing, which we don't do anymore. But the treaty still is in place. So there is a provision there. So we also don't interfere with national technical means of each other. So I guess a lot of work would be to try to see what we have at the moment, like try to take stock of all the treaties we have. Because we actually signed a fair number of them in the 80s, late 80s. Uh, Some of them later on became parts of the new treaties, but some are like standalone. So we would still have, for example, the treaty uh, or the agreement on identification of ballistic missile launches, which is important. And for example, the treaty of uh, major strategic exercises, when you notify if you're doing something strategic related. Uh, so you would have to take stock of things you already have, and then you see what are the biggest gaps, and you might try to fill them out uh, by executive action. But this like very makeshift, right? You would have to... Things you normally do with big document, which is sort through and which makes like sense as a whole, you would have to try to, to create from things which maybe not the best uh, fit for the purpose. So uh, we would lose stuff, definitely. Uh, and again, uh, all of the things I was just describing, it would be possible if both countries believe you would want to do that still. If one country doesn't believe it, they need it, then we will not do anything. <laughs> then it will be pretty much uh, in uh, uncharted territory. We never, never had this, that you have like free, full freedom of increasing your nuclear arsenals to whatever levels you want to. So... Among the treaties that the U.S. pulled out from was the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, in part because it wanted to develop ABM systems um, in Europe. And I recall that these were a big source of concern for Russia. They still are. Well, that was going to be my question, is to what extent, given where we are in the arms control dialogue right now, and the fact that some of these systems have already been deployed in Europe, how has Russia's view of them changed? Do they still represent the same level of obstacle to uh, any future agreement um, that they seemed to again a decade ago? Right. So Russia doesn't like uh, U.S. missile defense systems, which again is uh, ironic because U.S. was actually the one who started this whole discussion and then persuaded Russia that ABM is bad because uh, U.S. was behind Russia at that point of time. Anyhow, it's not that bad that it could have been. U.S. does not have, uh, you know, ground-based interceptors, the, the big ones you have in uh, in Hawaii and, uh, oh, sorry, in uh, California and in Alaska. But you do have some uh, facilities there. It's Aegis um, Ashore. Mm-hmm. The same thing you have on the ships, Aegis. Uh, Russian position is not that those missiles uh, or anti-missiles are a threat to Russian nuclear forces. They're currently not. There are a few of them. Uh, they are not, frankly, fast enough. The problem Russia has is that U.S. does not want in any way to limit its uh, missile defenses 
or even give any guarantees that it's going to stick to some kind of limits with its missile defenses. And Russia sees U.S. as integrating its uh, assets in, you know, big system all around the world with radars, with uh, allies, uh, and this is all well and good for the moment, but then at some point U.S. might just increase it and all of a sudden you have a bigger threat. So the problem with this approach is that uh, you have to constantly hedge against whatever U.S. might be doing, which is hard to predict. Uh, especially when you're not certain what's technically feasible, what's not technically feasible, and you have to hedge against against the worst-case scenario. So in that sense, when Russia was uh, creating this whole array of new systems, uh, heavy ACBM, boost-glade vehicle, mm-hmm. underwater torpedo... Right. Yeah, uh, this, this is why I yeah. was asking, because yeah, of the right. announcement that Russia has all these new technologies yes. that render yes. existing BMD technology... So you would probably don't need those if you had any predictability of what you would uh, have in 10, 20 years. But if U.S. says, like, we don't, you don't have any limitations and, oh, yeah, we might look into having missile defense in space, then all, all of a sudden in 20 years you might have working or semi-working uh, missile defense. And another thing is that we are decreasing numbers. We have been steadily decreasing numbers for some time. So since the period we uh, had, uh, you know, ABM treaty and uh, even uh, the period when U.S. left ABM treaty, we have been still decreasing the numbers. So the common, um, and I guess it's still true, but the common saying is like, oh, look, whatever U.S. has cannot intercept your Russian nuclear forces. Obviously, there are just many of them. They're just too sophisticated. We have just a dozens of, like, a couple of dozens of interceptors. It doesn't matter whatever US is having, you would still have the second strike capability. It is fair, but imagine that you are talking about further cuts. So US has proposed under the um, second Obama administration cut another 500 to, to get to 1,000. 1,000. So uh, when you look at the probability that something like this can happen, uh, if you have, I don't know, 6,000 or you have uh, 1,550 as we have now or 1,000, this is a different thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because Russia always, again, talking about worst-case scenarios, that's probably not very feasible, probably is not planning any of this, but if you look at the worst-case scenario is U.S. attacks Russia, first strike, bolt of the blue, whatever, takes out the majority of its systems, and then absorbs whatever is left by its missile defenses. So in that case, if you manage to, say, destroy uh, 90% of Russian nuclear weapons, and maybe you could absorb the remaining 10% with your missile defenses, which could include space bait interceptors mm-hmm. or whatever you have. So in that sense, uh, it's very hard to move in that direction. And because the threats you have to hedge against are increasing uh, as, as you're moving in that direction. So that, that doesn't help, uh, you know, <laughs> further cuts or disarmament. Or there may be, and Putin has been hinting at this, as we have this no sophisticated, new sophisticated systems, and we sort of said they can penetrate whatever U.S. Right. gonna plan anytime, then Russia might be okay. Like we're fine with, with that, and we can talk more about future cuts. But you can see that this is uh, this is not helping. So, assuming that we decide arms control is still a thing that we want to do, what are the the issues that would have to be addressed in in future talks? So. F- there are some from the U.S. side, some from the Russian side. On the U.S. side, obviously, it would be tactical nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. It was something that Senate wrote in a resolution of fortification of uh, New START that you should start this dialogue. It never started, but uh, U.S. wants some somehow to limit 
Russian non-strategic weapons and uh, deal with this perceived imbalance uh, of numbers of those. Uh, well, uh, again, Russia has stated that if U.S. wants to talk about Russian non-strategic weapons, Russia would want U.S. gravity bombs to be mowed out of Europe, mm-hmm. uh, which are currently based in NATO countries. Uh, I'm not sure how politically feasible it is for the U.S. It doesn't seem to be very politically feasible because those are seen as... Um, Alliance uh, builders, or you know, right? They're security guarantee for yeah, the alliance countries. Solidarity, uh, what have you? So they have like big political dimension. But for Russia, well, we may be moving them out of Turkey for other yeah. reasons. <laughs> you might, you might. Well, you move them from Greece, you move them from Britain over the over the years. Uh, but for Russia, even they are quite obsolete. You are modernizing them, but still, gravity bombs are not something you're. Uh, very fond of in 21st century, but still, uh, for Russia, those weapons are much more of a strategic uh, value than for U.S. because you can actually hit Russia with those bombs, even if you have to fly just next to Russia to use them. But that's that's a big difference between Russian non-strategic weapons and U.S. non-strategic weapons. Russia cannot hit, hit the U.S. US right. U.S. can't hit Russia, so there is a symmetry there. Yes, there's a there's a geographic issue here. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so there's one thing. Uh, the second thing U.S. Uh, wants to talk to is to including of the new Russian systems, mm-hmm. uh, which Putin presented, which we already briefly mentioned. So some of them, like Avangard and Sarmat already, uh, will be included under the new start. Uh, Kinjal, the um, uh, air-launched ballistic missile, would not, because like medium range, it doesn't fall under the strategic weapons. And two remaining, the Poseidon torpedo and the Puryavesnik uh, nuclear-powered cruise missile, Putin said they're open to, to mm-hmm. discussions, but probably in that case, Russia would want something. They would want it. Yeah. Well, something probably on missile defense, mm-hmm. because those are specifically made to defeat missile defenses. So it, if you trade them away mm-hmm. uh, or you include them, you would want something on that side. Uh, Russia wants something on ABM. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, again, it's probably not the ABM treaty. I don't think ABM treaty is coming. Yeah, I don't think politically that's feasible. Yeah, right. But it also, like, it's it's been a while. But some limits. Uh, some agreements that U.S. will limit uh, its uh, missile defense assets. Uh, and uh, we actually had this experience in the um, 90s. Uh, we had um, talks about how you um, distinguish between strategic missile defense and theater missile defenses. And uh, we did that. Uh, there was this uh, like a package of New York agreements on missile defenses, um, which included uh, you limit the space of interceptors, you limit the space of um, um, target uh, ballistic missiles, and you limit the distance you can use those target ballistic missiles for, for testing. So uh, that went nowhere because U.S. never ratified and then pulled out of uh, IBM treaty. But maybe talk about some of those like regional missile defenses, not not the homeland because that's a sacred cow. I can I can I can understand that. And uh, another thing that Russia is interested in and maybe would be interested to talk well definitely would be interested in talking about is space. Mm-hmm. Is not placement of weapons in space. Um, Again, big part of that would be not placing interceptor in space because mm-hmm. this is probably the most feasible way you can create a global missile defense. There is a proposal. So uh, there's less concern about you know anti-satellite weapons. There is that. So if you put weapons in space, you can target satellites. Obviously, mm-hmm. if you do testings or war fighting, God forbid, in space, we would all lose our satellites because the orbit would be just you know covered full with of space debris. Of yeah, which is would destroy satellites. But yeah, it's. Um, so I would say the biggest issue would be uh, possibility of missile defense. Mm-hmm. It's Russia wouldn't be that concerned, like attacking the land from space, 
because it's a weird idea and uh, no one actually tried to do this for quite a long time. And well, there's no treaty prohibited anyway, and US never tried. Uh, well, there've been talks about rod from gods, uh, but uh, yeah, that's sort of, I hope it's it's gone. But ballistic missile defense is something which is um, at least technically feasible. It's very expensive, not very super effective, but still you, you can pull it off. Yeah, the US has no problem spending lots of money on yeah, systems yeah. that are we've, we've seen exactly. We've seen an example. But um, uh, US would probably, yeah, want something on ASAT. So Russia and China had this proposal of a treaty of not placement of weapons right. into space. Well, I guess the biggest US concern is it doesn't like whatever Russia and uh, China are proposing, but uh, the biggest like real concern would be is it doesn't include ASAT weapons. Mm -hmm. So I said, like, why China and Russia can target our satellites while we agree to whatever they want? Again, Russian officials are on the record saying that we would encourage you to come up with any you know proposals to modify the treaty in any way you want to. Let's go and discuss it. Uh, U.S. does not want to engage uh, on this issue. And uh, Russia, frankly, is again openly, well, I'm not sure it's very openly, but saying like, look, we are not pushing this treaty because U.S. is not going to participate. It doesn't make any sense to have it without the United States. So again, I guess those would be the big uh, parts of uh, any future negotiations. And if we have democratic administration next, we'll probably get back to this whole idea of new cuts, further mm -hmm. cuts, maybe Obama style, maybe less, but still. And then uh, we'll, we'll resolve this. You would have to figure out how you cut numbers without you know, compromising your defenses. But the and in a way that's politically sustainable. Yes, and also if it's politically sustainable, but also like what do you get for it? Because uh, all of the talk I was hearing here in DC is US wants, well, not the US, but some of the US experts want to cut uh, ICBMs, the leg uh, part of the trial, which is old, which is not very useful anyway, and uh, US would be happy. Well, some people in the US would, would just let it go, but those would not be the weapons Russia would be mostly interested in. And Russia would not be interested in cutting its land base because it's the most important part of its stride. So it's definitely not going to be like tit for tat um, uh, exactly. But one other thing you would really have to address here is the possibility. We don't have INF treaty anymore. We have not touched INF treaty yet. But if US is deploying intermediate range systems in Europe, then there would be no talks of any further cuts because, as I said, U.S. intermediate range systems in Europe are strategic weapons. Mm -hmm. So you could be just as well adding them to the total numbers U.S. has because you can, the same way you can say, hit your Russian missile silos in the European part of Russia. And that raises a, a bigger sort of conceptual issue, which is that most of the arms control we've done in the past has been one for one. It's been the two sides commit to do more or less the same thing. Yeah. But what it seems like is that going forward, there may be more of a focus on a sort of mix and match approach. Which would be really complicated yeah. because we were not really good at even selling to our respective countries the one for one approach and sometimes people would say like this is you know it's not for our benefit to do so imagine with the mixes yeah yeah well it's politically hard enough hard to sell all right so just extend new start yeah <laughs> i think that's a good place to end on andre uh, thanks very much for joining us thank you All right, that's it. Thanks for joining us. You can find a link to Andre's bio in the show notes. And there's also a link to uh, an event he did at CSIS there. And uh, if it's not there already, his report for the CSIS Russia and Eurasia program will also be available on the website. Meanwhile, you can follow Andre on Twitter. He is at Baklitsky. That's B-A-K-L-I-T-S-K-I-Y. 
And if you're looking for more podcasts on international security in Russia, he hosts one uh, himself called Prinujdenia Kmuru, that is peace enforcement, uh, and you can look that up uh, on the web. If you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. Please do remember, keep sending us your mailbag questions. You can email them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. We'll do another mailbag session here uh, in the not-too-distant future. You should also follow us on Twitter, at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me, at Dr. J. Mankoff. And of course, finally, big thanks to everybody who worked so hard to make the podcast, including our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.